Welcome to Church and Other Drugs. My name is Dabesh. Oh, and my name is also Dabesh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Welcome to the quasi-racist uh, Church and Other Drugs. <laughs> we've, we've been through this. It's not offensive if, if you are, in fact, Indian. Yes, right? I can do it. That's, okay, so wait, wait. Do it again. I got this. Do it, do it again. Welcome to Church and Other Drugs. My name is the best. And hey, my name's Jed. I'm a and stereotypical white man from South Carolina. NASCAR. Yeehaw! Is that even the? Is that even it up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That works. We're good. We're good. That we're good. Works. Then we're good. Uh, so you heard about my um my work uh poo dilemma, right? About how the bathroom is located uh, directly oh, yeah, next I heard about to the that. conference table. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so yeah. so the the game has uh, the game has escalated. So the mm. the worst thing that I the thing I hate the most happened. Uh, well, two things. My first mm. observation was that it's so so we we're you know the the per, the cleaning lady it's like you know we're all friends it's someone that's like in the program and we know them and so, yeah, so yeah. like it's you know yeah. i try to like you know clean up my messes so she, you know they don't have a lot to do and all that and mm. it really sucks when i take a monstrous doo-doo and i open the door and like she immediately goes in after me to clean up and i'm oh. just like no just wait please no like you know exactly my what i've just done it's horrible. And so then on top of that, she there's no locks on the bathroom, so she definitely walked in while I was you can dookie? Uh yeah, there is. So yes, sometimes. But this mm. was like the time to do it cuz everyone was gone for lunch and I guess so the cleaning person was like thinking the same thing like, "Oh, everyone's gone, I'll clean." And I was like, "Everyone's gone, I can go to the bathroom in private." Nope. <laughs> Can't. <laughs> Ugh, sucks, That's dude. horrible. That's awful. That is awful. Um, so what's been up? Uh, just school, man. Doing a ton of school, like, like to a crazy degree. Seeing a few clients now. It's been interesting, man. Like the twelve step. I mean, I I kind of want to reach out to Chris from Dopey because it's like getting so involved with school like i'm wondering how it is for him like with 12-step work and going to meetings it's just like it's almost impossible to do that and then out here it's just i don't know like the west coast aa you had a guest on a few weeks ago about it a little bit like yeah the, the pacific, pacific group. group yeah ex a variation of that here too i get nothing from it you know, yeah. like I get nothing out of going. I don't get much out of carrying a message at all. It's a different type of AA, not what is in the book. You know, it's it's just it's not. I mean, yeah. No, yeah. Well, so I'm hard. I'm. Uh, that's funny. I sh I was gonna mm. call you, um, mm. but I, I uh, I called a bunch of people to um. Mm to run all this because I, I was in another one of my funks and like trying to internally debate whether 
I was just having a series of bad days or mm. is this a spiritual problem that I'm not addressing and I'm suffering from the bedevilments. But then I just, Mm -hmm. then I resented the fact that that shit is just built into my head. And I was like, okay, but there's, and I'm comparing myself to tons of other people that don't have Mm -hmm. to do all these stupid things to just live life. And I was like, so, (laughs) you know, and (laughs) what is happening? What is happening? dude? It really sucked. It really (laughs) sucked. And like, it was written all over my face and I was feeling ineffective as hell at work. And, uh, I just felt weird and yeah. Uh it's just I don't know and it's like it, I didn't think it wasn't it didn't seem like a problem that like going to a meeting was going to fix. Right, right. It just right, didn't. Right, right, and right. and like and I'm I'm backing away from it does bother me that people well, it doesn't bother me, but you have heard that, and you're going into this field too that people say that like what we do like doesn't count. Hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Toward like you never heard that. No. What does that mean? Like uh, that that helping alcoholics in a rehab setting doesn't count towards like twelve oh. step stuff. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, like, like I that's think bullshit. Jeffrey talked. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, I think it definitely counts as as like work, man. As as like primary purpose is helping the other alcoholic i mean i would say that if you were to hang your hat on you guys are my sponsees i don't need sponsees oh yeah i of think course. that's no. when it's a problem you know yeah okay i can get down because i've heard that from people and then i found out that they were eating volumes their entire tenure as a <laughs> as a clinician yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. See, I don't. I, I, well, I've already. Yeah. I've already ran through that in my head, and like that would just be imp- That would just be impossible. Can you imagine, like, living the? At, I mean, I guess I can imagine it'd be like straight back in the day, but that level of everyday lying, like, just yeah. every everything you do would be a lie. So yeah, I was. Uh, I mean. I think that, I mean, what we do outside of the rooms is very important. And, you know, if our uh, profession is in mental health, I mean, of course that has value. You know, it's not like these these weird dogmatic rules just stop working once I leave a room of AA. Right. And that's what I landed on was that, like, I was it was exactly the same as my religious legalism. I was transferring it to AA and then I because I'm so effed in the head, mm-hmm. I went into this mindset of like, if I don't do A plus B, then like I'm gonna get smote by God or something. You know, I'm gonna suffer these consequences okay. because I didn't do the magic formula okay. of whatever. And it's like, dude, I'm allowed. I'm really fucking hard on myself. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And me too, man. And it's like, functional level, like. Oh man, like this, you know, AA has a uh, community and, and AA has, you know, there's this, this spiritual, com- this huge component, right? With God. And I mean, I can, I can, I can kind of tap into these facets another way. Right. I mean, in other ways, they come together in AA so beautifully, right? Sure. But I mean, I, I can kind of tap into this in another way. I have a little bit of agency over that. You know? Right. It's, it's always, and it's, it's, and, it, and it's like the, the ones that bother me are the ones that treat AA like it. That is it. That's that's as far as you go. 
that's all you mm-hmm. need, you know, the mm-hmm. they will dissect the word the in the book and be like, so what did, what did he mean when he <laughs> what wrote the? Really, he mean by the? Motherfucker, <laughs> I think he meant the. <laughs> and then, it, and then it, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so this is a good segue because the person I'm interviewing has similar views, uh, I would say. Um, yeah. Bob Forrest, everyone. Oh, and, and if you notice, Debesh's mic got uh, a little different. Oh. It's because his Skype froze, so we're using a different program, so deal with it. But Bob Forrest, dude. Bob Forrest. My chill shoes are well-kept cemetery long. Both of them weeping Their one good son now was gone How old are your kids again? Seven and two. Oof. Seven, two, and 31, but, I mean, 31-year-old doesn't live here, thank gosh. Yeah, I hope you're not still putting him to bed. Well, I still help him with his rent sometimes, but he ain't living here. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, yeah, man, thanks for, uh, thanks for letting me call you, dude. Um, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll just hit record. Um, yeah, I'm a, uh, I never know how to start these damn things. No, neither do I. I just usually start. Yeah, so, (laughs) now I've been listening to Don't Die a lot. So, I saw you on, like, Celebrity Rehab, which I used to watch when I was in rehab all the time. I've been to rehab 18 times. Um, Oh, my God, almost the same as me. We're like brothers. Oh, what's your number? I went 24 times. 24. A lot of those are, a lot of those are just, like, you know, once you start leaving, did you start leaving See, treatment after like a week or two I, weeks? I was a finisher. I was a completer. Oh, my God. So yeah. I was a completer in the beginning for like six programs. Then I left one time, and then it just got impossible to stay after detox because like I knew you have to get out in the world and live and be sober and go to meetings. Right? Yeah. So my brain would tell me, just get the fuck out of here. You don't need to pay for this. Yes. You know, also, with a lot of the young people and people in the last 10 years going to treatment, they don't really understand, or like seven years. The insurance didn't pay for treatment when I was going. I had to pay. Yeah. Because, I, I, you know, fortunately, I was able to make a 
career in music, I remember I would write a check for $14,500 myself to go to treatment. And I wanted it to work. And it still, you know, was ineffective because of my denial or because of the pronouncement of my addiction or because of what a baby I was. hard to say why it didn't work. But I wanted it to work. Nowadays, kids go with their insurance cards. They don't even want it to work. They just want a place to stay and good food and flirt with girls. Yeah. You know what I mean? We've got to do something about treatment. That's what... Because it's... It's it's virtually non ineffective because the kids don't want to be there. Right, and that's so. So I just um I find my last one was in 2014. So I've stayed sober since since September 23rd. Oh great! Yeah, and I just great. started um my uh, CIT, my counselor in training, and I work at a adolescent treatment center. And so, oh, that's, so yeah, that's <laughs> really sad sometimes. Oh, it's it's it, like yeah. It's. I mean, it's a good place to cut my teeth because I figure if I can do it there, I'll be able to do it anywhere. But like, man, like talk about kids that don't want to be there. Yeah. Well, and I don't know that that you know I have all kinds of opinions as you if you've listened to Don't Die yeah, yeah. This Life with Doctor True, you know I got a lot of opinions. <laughs> but you know. I, I, I can give my own experience, too. So different than opinion is experience. When right. my son was 15, he was having troubles, right? He doesn't like me to get too into what the troubles were, but he yeah. was having real troubles, and it was pretty pretty pronounced, and it was a crisis, right? And everyone that I knew was like, you need to send him away. And then I worked at Musicians Assistance Program, which is now Music Cares, and the the people that had this adolescent treatment center heard about it called Cottonwood in Arizona. And so they got a hold of a friend of a friend of mine and said that they would scholarship my son there because of all the people that I help at MAP or whatever. Oh, nice. And so I had this, but I just couldn't send my kid away. I knew that I was part of the reason why he was so fucked up. I knew I was part of the reason why he, if, if he was going to get better, I had to be a part of the reason how he got better. And I didn't see how identifying him as the problem and sending him away for three to six months was going to fix anything if I was part of the problem or I had caused the problem. You understand? Yeah. Parents need to understand this. Kids don't fall out of the sky. They are created by their parents. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And these adolescent no, programs will always point. allow the parents... Oh, you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, you fucking did. Your kid's no. cutting himself and smoking heroin. You fucked up as a parent. Are you yeah. kidding me? That's what we deal with you know mostly I mean? but, is the but, parents. Yeah, but, but no treatment center who's for profit is going to tell the parents who are paying that they're, they're the problem. Right. You know what I mean? Especially all those for-profit ones in Utah and Idaho. and Oh, like the the, you know, the ranches and... Yeah, the outback programs and all yeah. that. So, like, so, what, so, so, what did you do? Like, you know, what, so I what did, do you I, do in that situation? I, I got him into an outpatient program, an adult outpatient program, which this will tell you, this was 16, 17 years ago, right? Uh huh. Had some friends, they had an out, uh, adult outpatient. I said, I don't, you know, he already acts like a 25 year old, doesn't need to be in with a bunch of. 13 and 15 and 17 year olds he needs to be in with you know young young adults so he was in a uh young adult outpatient program and here in la and then we had 
group therapy for parents once a week, and then he and I went to one-on-one therapy, right? Okay. And he navigated out of it. You know what I mean? He didn't, you know, it didn't solve all problems. That's another thing parents don't understand. It doesn't solve all problems. It solved his going in a severe wrong direction with hard drugs, right? But it didn't stop him from smoking weed. It didn't stop him from arguing. It didn't stop him from having adolescent angst and rebelliousness. Mm -hmm. See, these parents are so naive as to what the goals are. And I've been very specific the last five years. My goals are that kids not die before they grow up. Yeah. That's my only goal. Yeah. Whether people find Jesus or whatever the hell else they find or sobriety like I have, like that's not for me to determine anymore. I'm just strictly in a try to help these kids survive until their adulthood. Well, and that's where like, so there'll be the people in meetings that like, you know, uh, rehab's just a $25,000 big book and all that shit. But like for me, like I had like all of my, you know, I was a, uh, a whatever shooter. So all of my using ended in like, like either an overdose or something horrendous. Like I wasn't the type that could just walk into a meeting and get sober. Like I had to be stopped like every single time. Yeah. No, the court stopped me. I mean, eventually, but, but see, I had to come to grips with why did I go to all these treatments and what did they mean, right? And each one had some value. You, you, can't, you mm-hmm. can't go through life being a victim forever. And I realized that, that that was my mentality, that drug addicts are very victim mentality oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why there's more and more Americans becoming addicts because there's more and more Americans who are gravitating towards a victim mentality. Sure. So, so, so I had to go back after I had like a year and a half sober and think like, what do I really, do I really hate rehab and think it's full of shit? Cause I was one of those people that thought, yeah, they just take your money and they don't really do anything. And all they do is take you to AA. AA. And I realized like, no, there was, there was people I met that said shit that I heard, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, and in the 1980s, when I was going in the early 1990s, you also heard that stuff in 12-step meetings, right? Yeah. So you could have gone to 12-step meetings and heard these things that you needed to hear, but I heard them mostly in rehab. But but then when I but it was still available to be heard in AA. Now I truly believe it's not available to be heard in AA. Well, it's in Southern California yeah, where okay. I live. Yeah, because yeah. rehab rehab speak and and victim mentalities and whining and complaining has replaced storytelling. What it was like, what happened, what my life is like now. Um, proselytizing step work in a very Christian Methodist way is very much practiced in Los Angeles AA. So, you know, I don't know whether it's the de-evolution of AA in Southern California or, but I just don't hear the great stories and the great joking around and the camaraderie and the encouragement of new people like people encouraged me for years. I see a lot of what step are you on? You got to do this. You got to do that. And the big book is very specific to not do that. Don't do that. It says repeatedly, don't proselytize. 
share your experience, strength, and hope. Don't tell other people what to do. Yeah. But you know what I mean? That's, but yeah. as we become a more narcissistic society because of social media and we're all so important, we're all snowflakes, <laughs> it's crept into the 12-step world. So I truly believe rehab has more value now than it did then. And that is you will hear the truth. Oh, yeah. Because sooner or later, I mean, I'll tell it to you. Chuck, my partner on Don't Die, will tell it to you. Warren Boyd, his boss, will tell it to you. Evan and Jared, my partners, will tell it to you. We're going to form an alliance with you before we tell it to you. But, but you know, the the initial thing when I would go to rehab, they used to say, when I would start complaining, they'd say, well, your best thinking got you here. And I was adult enough to understand that is fucking true. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> But if you tell a millennial their best things got you got you here, they'll just walk out the door. So you yeah. have to be able to say it in a different way. Like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but like you're 30 years old and you don't even pay your own cell phone bill. I mean, isn't that embarrassing? Yeah. That's how I present it. Yeah. Just point out how lacking in autonomy and functionability you are. I mean, that's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, didn't there some friends you went to high school with that – like are really killing it and have houses and lives and relationships and like why why do you not have that stuff? So and that forces them to look at their victim mentality. So when oh, you, well, you know. <laughs> when did when do you when did you think no? And I completely agree all of that. That's part of the reason we started. Like, like that's what Dopey's about, and that's part of the reason we started this podcast. And it's a lot of like people I've met in rehab just telling their stories. But like, so when do you think like rehabs became like broken, if you will? Well, it's not that the rehabs are, you know, there's a couple of things, but the rehabs, the people, here's what I know about rehab it's ownership that matters because the frontline right. people are all good. The people doing God's work and fucking teching and overnight teching and counseling and driving, all those people are solid people. No one would want those fucking jobs unless they had their heart in it. And I'll give you an example. When I got, when I got my first job working for Dr. Drew, um, it was $16 an hour. And I was like, Drew, this is, fuck this. I'm not going to work for $16 an hour. Are you fucking kidding me? I, I can get unemployment for almost two-thirds of that. You know what I mean? And he was like, just hold on, hold on, hold on. And I said, I said it's insulting to be a KDAC-certified counselor, and your fucking hospital offers me $16 an hour. Why don't I just go deliver pizza? Right. You know what I mean? And I've been adamant that counselors need to be respected like MFTs and psychologists. They are as valuable a part of this process in, the, in rehab as anyone. And to pay them $2 an hour more than tax is ridiculous. Agreed. Right? Yeah. So, 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 I, I, but, so the people working as tax counselors, drivers, admit, uh, you know, the people that do the, the hard work in rehabs, all of their hearts are in the right place. I've rarely met a bad person on that level. You know what I mean? I've I've met people that are a little power crazy, and you just point out like, dude, like you're like the king of the fucking idiots. Like, what? Why you get so pumped up? Like being in charge of twenty drug addicts? It's not that hard. They're like pathetic. <laughs> yeah. <it's... laughs> 
So there's a way to remind line staff of like, come on now, you're not fucking president of the United States. You're a fucking tech in a rehab. It's, you know, <laughs> loosen up a little bit. But for the most part, everyone I meet in every rehab I've been to in the United States are cool people that work there. It's the owners that are the greedy fucks. Yeah. Right? That I can so, also attest so to. Ownership is critical to rehab. And what I'm trying to do is bring a standard to ownership that they at least have to have some sort of training or background in addiction medicine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I've been kind of behind the scenes trying to say, you know, you can't be granted an, uh, uh, a license to a rehab center if you have no training. Yeah. You know what like I mean? Like an, these, o- these an ownership license? Are granted to, yeah. The ownership licenses, the license to practice addiction treatment is granted to people that have no training and no background in addiction. You know what I mean? That's crazy. So at least they should have to be as qualified as the staff they hire. And Mm -hmm. that hopefully will get, but I I just think the insurance money's drying up. So all the greedy assholes are going to get out. And I've already seen it here in LA. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how did, so bringing up celebrity, rehab and, and like dr drew yeah you see like and i mean this with the most respect possible like you seem like the kind of guy that would like make fun of something like that oh yeah for sure like how did that so, come, how did that come about well it was my fault on a certain level but then it was uh like a gut call so what happened was i didn't like how particularly how late night comedians were treating drug addicts and what I perceived as mentally ill people. I had a real soft spot for how Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton were just being made the punchline joke of everybody. Yeah. And I, cause I, cause I kind of thought like, these are like 17, 18, 20 year old girls. Like if the whole world was laughing at me when I was 17 or 20, I would have killed myself. Oh yeah. And they were constantly the punchline of Jay Leno and David Letterman. And, and it, it just seemed like an ugly side of America that I had never seen before. Like these are, these are children yeah. and you're making fun of their mental illness and their drug addiction. And these are, this is not Elizabeth Taylor at 40 years old. This is a 17 year old girl. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I'd never seen this ugliness in America. But I had no idea of what ugliness right. was. To yeah, come. yeah, that seems but, so. But, that seems so but tame I just now. Vulgar and and un-American and disgusting and Schadenfreude and just I just felt like somebody's got to do something. So I went into work one day after Jay uh, on the Tonight Show. Jay Leno had you know a five minute monologue, and two of the punchlines were drug addicts and mentally ill people. And where and, were you working at the time? I was working with Dr. Drew at Austin Singer's Hospital. Oh, okay. And so I came into work and I went into his office and I said, dude, here's the deal. Being an addict is under attack. And, it's, and it, I gave the example of what I had seen last night on Jay Leno. And somebody needs to fight back. And so we need to do a TV show that shows how brave and courageous and soulful and funny and charismatic and, and just badass drug addicts are. And so, and the reason I think it needs to be a TV show is because America is so stupid at this point, there is, they don't believe anything they don't see on television. 
They have to see it on television. Yeah. They can't, it can't be an American Medical Association, New England Journal, boring piece. It can't be a CNN kind of 15-minute special. It has to be a dumb TV show that Americans watch. And then, at, like, The Biggest Loser is what I give the, gave the example of. And it needs to be like that. And it needs to humanize addicts to the public. Because I felt like there was a lynch mob mentality going to start about addicts. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And so, so we, he said, oh, my God, I've, I've been offered that a lot. And I never wanted, because I was his partner, he said, I never even wanted to bring it up to you because I thought you would hate the idea because of AA. And I was like, no, no, no. Rehab is rehab. AA is AA. I mean, yep. if anybody can't keep that straight, then fuck them. So, <laughs> so, so uh, he, he pitched it around with this TV production thing, Erwin Entertainment, and like to your regular things. And we had regular addicts. We had we had tape of regular addicts, and and um, and with a sizzle reel, it's called. And they pitched it around, and. Nobody really was buying it because they thought it was so controversial, like put drug addicts on television and and what if one of them died and all yeah. that kind of fear was around the pitch, right? This, this was before so intervention about, too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is about a year this is about a year and a half before celebrity rehab aired. So oh, then yeah. it went kind so of dormant and it was over and we'd given it the good shot and whatever and then uh mostly it was the fear that one of them would die, right? And mm-hmm. and the the ridicule that we would get for breaking somebody's anonymity or sacred trust of a medical doctor or whatever. There was a lot of fear from, I remember it was like, you know, Nat Geo and, and um, the Lifetime Network. And there was just like, oh my God, this is a crazy idea. I don't know how you would do this. Like you're going to get so ridiculed. So it died. And about eight months later, VH1 came back to early entertainment and said, if you would have celebrities on that, like the surreal life, we would do that show. So then Drew came back to me and goes, how do you feel about that TV show? Only that it be celebrities. And I was like, Oh my God, no, that's like fucking retarded. Like what, TMZ, like B-level, C-level celebrities trying to regain their career? I mean, I, I basically said what it became. Yeah, exactly. You in pitched the, first, the show. In the, first, in the first five minutes of what oh I Oh, my God. Right? And I said, no, no, no. And he said, you're the one that said America needs to see drug addicts. What's the, what's the difference if it's a B-level celebrity or a normal person? Ooh. They're drug addicts or drug addicts. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, you got me there. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, and, and I wanted to have say over who the people were, right? So okay. I, didn't, I wanted to meet them and not make sure they're not just trying to say they're drug addicts to go on television to regain their career or whatever. Yeah. And even on the first season, there was a couple of those, Yeah. right? It was hard to stop. But I knew Jeff Conway, who was an old friend of mine, and I knew he needed help. And I had tried to help him like two times. And I went to Jeff. I go, Jeff, what do you think about doing like rehab on TV? And he said, I'm in. Oh, I'll do it. <laughs> and he's a real, there's no, he's as real a drug addict as me. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've known, I had known him for like 20 years. And so once Jeff was going to do it, then I felt like you're going to see, you know, drug addiction and all its splendor and charisma and love. He was really the person I was thinking of that America needs to see. And still to this day, people talk about Jeff Conway to me. Yeah. Right. It's so sad that he passed away. And, yeah. And, and, you know, I had a, one of my best friends just died. I, I found out on January 19th. I just found out on um, Thursday. Oh, and, sorry. you know, how drug addicts, they fade into the woodwork. Mm-hmm. And I cried and I lived with this guy for years. And he's an old, old friend of mine. And, and, uh, and I and a bunch of my friends, you know, Anthony and Shelly and everybody that knew him over the weekend, I've just been thinking about this guy, like how fucking funny he was and how cool he was. And I've told my wife like a hundred stories about him. You know, it was just drug addicts are the coolest people on the face of the earth where I come from. They are everywhere I've been the most unique, the most creative, the most, the, the fucking funniest people in the world. Yeah, real drug addicts. And I knew Jeff was that, and I knew Stephen Adler was that. I tried to get Stephen, a really good friend of mine for years. And I tried to get Stephen to be on, and he was like, no fucking way, are you kidding? I'm not going to go on television and throw up and be all high. That <laughs> <laughs> shows you that Stephen Adler isn't as crazy as you think he is. <laughs> he's And he's sober now, huh? Yeah, he's sober. That's... But I mean, I... And, and what's crazy about Stephen is like what most people don't know is he on a lot of the people that that did the show there was financial motivations. I think everybody got like fifty grand to do a TV just to do it. So, and Stephen don't need money. Yeah. Stephen's got one fifth of Guns and Roses. He doesn't ever need money for the rest of his life. You know what I mean? Damn. Yeah. So. So God, when it's got to be hard to get it, sober with that money on season three. See, then I started, so I was helping, like, pick the real drug addicts, right? So I had heard that Rodman was in legal trouble. So I tipped off the production company, like, reach out to Rodman and tell him that we'll, we'll figure out how to do his community service. Uh-huh. And that was the same thing with Stephen Adler. He had court trouble, and I said, All right, we, can, we can probably fix that. <laughs> well, that's how y'all got him, was with, with the court? Yeah. That's really that is hilarious. Like, yeah, they had like they had like five hundred hours of community service, and then we would just have them <laughs> do it while they were there. You know what I mean? Oh, that's that's classic. And so that's how we got Rodman and Adler, and then Heidi is an old friend of mine too. And you know, VH1 wanted Tom Sizemore and Heidi Fleiss on the same show, and I was like, well, I don't know. I didn't think Tom would do it. I had asked him before, and he said no. So, well, you know, I just wanted to help. I, mostly I wanted to help Heidi. She is a real drug addict, and I thought, and then what we started seeing was, for some reason, when these drug addicts get sober, they think twice about getting loaded because everybody's watching them. You know what I mean? Really? There's now there's all this... There was all this attention focused on them, right? Meaning, meaning of how tragic their stories were, and now they were sober. So it was much. It, it made them think twice about getting loaded again. Because that's I what I was that, gonna and, ask. Was like the results, and like, because I'm, I'm sure VH1 didn't give a flying fuck if they no, stayed they sober didn't give or not. A fuck. 
So, so it's, they, it's... The, but 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 VH1 did because Drew insisted that they be with me and Shelly in our outpatient program for six months afterwards. Oh, okay. So the people go through a month of treatment and then they were just with me and Shelly at our outpatient clinic in Hollywood for six months. And let me tell you something: the people that hung out with us and came every couple, you know, we had it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, 10 a.m. to two. And then, I, you know, me, I, I got to go to the store, come with me, or let's go eat, or let's go record shopping, because it was right in Hollywood and Vine, my, my outpatient program. So the people who came there got in state sober. Janice Dickinson got in state sober. Eric Roberts got in state sober for almost a year and a half. Damn. Right? Um, Jason Waller got sober and stayed sober, and now is his own treatment center in Orange County. So the people that came to our outpatient and really, and here's another thing, the people that were real addicts who connected or attached to me, Drew and Shelley, who came to the program and took it seriously had, had a a positive outcome from being on celebrity rehab. The people that were just going to re get themselves in front of the public eye and all that, they never came to outpatient. Yeah, you know okay. what I mean. That makes and like and so outpatient was off camera. Who was serious? Yeah, it was all off camera, and nobody was keeping track of it, and nobody cared. But you know, me and Shelly and Drew, and Drew would come by and run a group, and he was their doctor, and then me and Shelly ran the the groups and did the case management, and the people who did that had great outcomes. So this is another thing of why. You can take the worst, most narcissistic, fucked up drug addict, and if they can form attachment and hang around with somebody long enough and and hang in there long enough and be absent long enough, miracles can happen. That's why I'm so against the 30-day model. Like, 30 days ain't going to do shit. Might as well just detox people and let them go home. Yeah, 30 days is a detox. Yeah, well, nowadays. But, I mean... Say, say detox on average takes seven to 10 days. Okay. So the person's only going to be there for 20 more days. What's the point of that? There's no point of that. They're not going to learn anything in 20 days. Yeah. You need to be around for months and months. You know what I mean? I, and I'm not saying it needs to cost a fortune. You just need, you know, we had, they lived at home or some of them lived in sober living and they came to us three days a week you know, four hours a day, 12 hours a week. And they could text or call or whatever, but outpatient programs are effective. Um, if the, if the addict is signed up for it, so you stabilize the person for a month and then they go to outpatient for six months and you, and uh, listen, right. Janice well, Dickinson outpatient... got sober that way. Did you see her on the TV show? She yeah, she was case. rough. She was rough. She got, she's still sober. Yeah, that's well. So it's, being on celebrity rehab. Well, <laughs> Think about I, that. <laughs> well, have you, have, have you ever heard those? Over. Well, I went on this TV show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. I remember. So, do you remember when uh, Intervention came out? Yeah, you remember when Intervention first came out? Um, yeah. Well, here's the thing that nobody knows. So, Candy Finnegan, who's on Intervention, uh-huh. is one of my oldest friends. She and I were in supervision together in the same facility. How crazy is that? That is crazy. Two people that in their second acts of their life, I I forget what she did. I think she worked in publishing or entertainment or something. 
And we were both supervised by Buddy Arnold at the Musician's Assistance Program and became counselors in the same time and then had TV shows. That's funny. (laughs) That's a small world. It is. I I remember it. It had just started coming out when I was deep into my shooting cocaine binge, and my friends had an intervention on me where they like called the cops and like got me drug out of this crack house. And I, my paranoia and delusion was focused on. I, I completely thought I was on an episode of Intervention, and like I thought I saw cameras <laughs> and stuff, and like very sad because I was very, I was like laughing and joking with my friends, and they were just crying and looking at me, and I was like, oh, this is good, man. This is good footage. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. There's a guy that I've been helping this year who was in my sober living in Hollywood, and and he was like 15 years straight on that. Oh God! Uh, even in month two, he would come to me sometimes and go, "Bob, reassure me that I'm, there aren't cameras in here and this isn't going to be broadcast on TV or something." Oh, and I was like, God. "I promise you, dude." I promise you there's no TV cameras here. And he goes, yeah, but you are the guy from the TV show. I said, I am the guy from the TV show. <laughs> but the TV show's been over for five years. There's no TV show being shot here. And all the other guys in the rehab were nervous. Like, why? You know, he's crazy. And I was like, no, he's just a, a drug addict. He's our friend. We love him, you know. Because paranoia freaks people out. It freaks even drug addicts out. <laughs> yeah, it does. That's the, th- Yeah. Oh, and God. I just kept reassuring him, and now he's going to be working for us. So what's he's just what's so your great. what's Aloe's model? Because I looked at the Aloe's website, my... and it's, it seemed like you know, like a like a relatively standard Southern Cal rehab. Yeah, it's a it's a Malibu rehab, but 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 I designed the program. So the idea is, I believe it's all about attachment and not punitive. So. So, and I don't, and I believe it's, it's disingenuous to kiss clients ass. So yeah. somewhere in there, see Malibu treatment centers, kiss clients asses. That's what they do. That's, that's what they're known for. So we don't kiss their ass. We don't act superior to them. Like you're Betty Ford Hazelden, mm-hmm. just equal, everybody equal. Um, you know, what? most treatment centers I've worked in, um, they want the staff to be dressed a certain way and wear the same clothes or wear, you know, wear the name tags or be authorities in some way. And I don't like that. I, I, if you went into Aloe this evening, you wouldn't know who the staff were from the clients. It would take you 15, 20 minutes to figure it out. That's what, that's what helps a community of, of some sober people, some newly sober people just, living together and kind of sharing together and forming trust together and respect. Right. So I started it. I started with Evan and Jared, these two friends. And I said, listen, we're going to have no rules. There's only two rules. Be cool. And don't use those are the only two rules. You can stay up as long as you want. You can get up as long as morning as you want, but don't forget the rule. There's a rule, one rule, be cool. So if you're going to stay up late, don't be laughing and keeping everyone else awake. Right? So we yeah. had no bedtime, no wake-up time. We had groups <sighs> that started at 10 a.m. Try to be there, you know? 
So but if you're not going to be there, there, stay in your room and be cool. Don't be disruptive. Don't walk out of your room all pouty with your bathrobe on, dragging your ass to the kitchen to get coffee at 1030 in the morning. That's what a baby does. Somebody who's cool doesn't do that. So how, so, did, that, how did that so work out? It worked out great right away. Like right That's away, we started awesome. being the place where where people that hated rehab went. <laughs> <laughs> and what's funny is, as soon as you treat those people with love and kindness and yeah. respect, and they respect you back. Yeah. But if you talk to them like children and punitive and you're superior and they're inferior, you'll get fuck you and I don't need to be here, fuck you, and, you know, if I want my money back, all the things that Betty Ford and Hazelden get. You'll get that all day long if you treat, you know, that. Because I was that population. I know that population. Yeah, that me failed too. rehab 18 times. You yeah. can't fucking do the same shit with them. So we became known as the place you could dump your uh, kind of fucked up clients to. Because I knew in the Malibu market there's like, 18, 20 rehabs out there, and we're going to start another one. What's going to differentiate us? Well, I love the worst cases. So let's just be known as the place that takes the worst cases. Then we won't even have to spend money on marketing because promises and passages and elevations and, and Avalon, all these rehabs will send us the, all the clients and say, fuck you to them. <laughs> That's, dude, we just, uh, we actually prank called passages a few episodes back and got hung up on. Yeah, they're just a money-making machine. They That's are, they man. About. Like, during the intake process, I got straight hung up on. Crazy. Well, they, 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 they're, they're doing something. They, you know, I can, I can tell you how rehab works. It's only about, it used to be about 40% of policies in America are any good. Now it's less than that. I believe it's about 20% of the policies. So what, only ins- one insurance out of, policies? What, yeah. So only one out of three insurance policies is any good, right? Okay. Where you're going to get, you're going to make 30 grand or something a month. So, so most intake departments are mostly call center screening centers to figure out whether you have that insurance. And then also to figure out if you have means to pay cash, right? So right. they're really, they're really not assessing you or intaking you. They're just, they're just trying to figure out whether you can afford it or whether you're worth it. Which and is what happened was awful. I know the, the whole uh. system we have is a broken fucking shithole and don't blame the rehab owners. It's the insurance industry's fault. It's not the rehab owners. They just give what they want. They give the insurance people what they want. So Here's how- my take in the, in the old days, insurance used to just pay me a daily rate, right? Okay. They trusted me, Flat got rate. a good reputation, you know, I'll give you a, I'll give you 20 days at, at 1300 bucks a day. I was like, okay. And then you call back and you say, okay, we're going to move them. So I worked, I went by what they said. This at Lost and Seems Hospital. They said 20 days. That's more than fair. Okay. Let's drop the person down to outpatient at the 20 day point. Right. And then they'd give us $500 a day or $400 a day. Once in a while, I would say, you know, this kid's really fucked up. I don't know what to tell you. I just, like, he is, if he leaves his property, he's going to smoke crack. So they'd say, okay, we'll give you another seven days, but that's it, 
right? So, but they were paying us a daily rate and they didn't ask what we did with the clients because we had a great reputation for decades and they trusted us. Once this new Wild West happened six, seven, eight years ago, you couldn't trust any of these motherfuckers. You got rehabs that don't run any groups. They just bill insurance. Uh, It's just fraud everywhere. So the insurance industry had to step in and institute what what I thought was a wrong way to go. And I argued with a friend of mine is a vice president at Value Options. It's based out of Chicago. And I just said, dude, this is wrong. Just only sign up with certain rehabs. You fuck, fuck all these new people. Yeah. Fuck them. Why weren't they in the rehab business 10 years ago when you weren't making any money? Any new rehabs should be off. You know, you've got to figure out how insurance doesn't compensate these fly-by-night new rehabs. Right. But instead, they went to insisting quantifiable evidence-based treatment and what groups, and they started mandating what groups had to be and who had to, what level of education had to facilitate them, which had always kind of existed. But they didn't, they didn't micromanage it like they do now. Uh, It's all because of all the fraud motherfuckers in Florida and Orange County, California. It's all these fraudulent criminals, sovereign health. You know what I mean? American addiction centers. Yeah. It's all these fucking criminals. You know, I'm sure they'll try to sue me, but once they look at my (laughs) financial situation, they'll know that it's not worth it. But, um, that's one good thing about being poor is nobody tries to sue you. Because <laughs> <That's true. laughs> there's a background. I'm sure lawyers have the ability to look at what your net worth is. I have no, like, I own nope, no nope. property. I have no bonds. I have no stocks. I have very little savings. So I, I've used it as this protective shield <laughs> to be able to say what I want. <laughs> because Drew is much more guarded about that stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. But, but so the criminals made the insurance companies insist on JCO, which is just a for-profit certifying book, quantum, you know, used to be really important, JCO. Now, now you get it for like 3000 bucks. You just pay a consultant to do it. So, 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 so the criminals will it? always find a way around it. So, when they're, they're, well, now, where is the future? The future is go back to the insurance company and say, listen, I don't want you micromanage me. I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't want you telling me how to help drug addicts. I've been doing it for 22 years. Give me $800 a day and mi- m- minimum 14 days inpatient treatment. Give me a guarantee of 60 days outpatient treatment based on PHP and IOP, and I'll figure out the rest from my end. But a deal? So in-network is the way of the future. So, there will, so that will make all the bad actors go away. They're not interested in you know, making a, a, a treatment center that, that is, you know, you know, if you think of gross revenue, of a typical treatment center in Malibu, gross revenue is like 1 to 1.4 million a month, right? Right. If they're running at a 20% net, which a lot of them are, 25% net, which is unheard of if you know anything about business. Supermarkets run at a three to five percent net. Walmart runs at a three to five percent net. We have run at a twenty to thirty percent net. That's the revenue they have, the more wealthy the owners become. Yeah. It's very simple math. You don't have to be a genius to figure it out. Well, they're not going to be interested because at the eight hundred a day inpatient rate and the 
in the five hundred a day PHP rate and the two hundred dollar a day IOP rate, your gross revenue is going to go from one point one million dollars to four hundred thousand dollars a month. And at a twenty percent net, that's eighty grand. Do you think these greedy motherfuckers want to make only eighty grand a month? They're going to yeah. get out. Yeah, that's true. You know, I just can't imagine the greed of these fucking people. Well, Unbelievable. Just, yeah. So how so, so how how long have you been counseling? Since like, 1999. It's a long time. That is a long time. So do you still have trouble? Well, I guess not. You're you're you know mourning a friend because I'm still. I I feel like the hardest thing that's going to be for me is because I'm a super um, empathic guy. Like, so like detaching myself from the people, from all the failures and the people that don't get it and the people that die and the people that you really just want to get it, that are never going to get it. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an emotionally draining well, you got job. Experience. I can, I can share you though. It is, but it, you, it also helps you in building emotional resiliency that maybe you've never had before. I'll give you the example. I teach it in my lectures when I go talk to counselors and, 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 you know, go to colleges and whatever. So the first person I ever tried to help got sober. The first person ever, I, I said, I'm going to help this guy. And he got sober. And it just so happened that he was a very famous musician, right? Okay who nobody thought could get sober. And if you've seen my movie, you'll probably yeah. know who it is. I don't like to talk about it too much. Yeah. So I get him sober. How did I get him sober? The old-fashioned AA way, not a counselor way. He was my friend. I loved him. He was dying. He called me and another friend of ours. We hadn't heard from him for like three years. He called and said, something's wrong with my arm. He called my friend. And my friend called me and goes, dude, he just called me. And, and I was like, what did he say? Cause none of us have heard from him for years. And he said, he said something's wrong with his arm and he wants me to come over and look at it. And he goes, will you go with me? And I was like, fuck yeah, I'll go with you. <laughs> so we went over to the guy's house. We prayed in the driveway, right? Please mm-hmm. don't let me, I remember my prayer. Please don't let me alienate him. Don't let me be judgmental. Don't let me let let the light of the universe come through me because you got to worry about your prejudices, right? Yeah. And so we walked in and he wouldn't really let us in because the house is so destroyed and you could see inside the house. It was like four inches thick with syringes just laying across Uh. the whole living room. And there was trails you could see going to the couch and going to the kitchen and just trash everywhere. And it stank really bad. And there were these shoes that he and I had 10 years before bought these patent leather shoes, these cool shoes. And he started putting on his shoes and said, I, I think I need, and he wouldn't show us his arm. He said, I need you guys to take me to the hospital. And so he started to put his shoes on and I go, Oh my God, did you get new shoes? And he goes, no, these are the ones that we, we and I got. And I was like, that was 10 years ago, dude. And he goes, I know I don't go out much. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's the greatest drug addict line in the world. Well, I don't go, well, out, I don't much. go out much. It's the same shoes that he had for 10 years ago. They were brand new. <laughs> oh, my God. Understatement so of the year. We take, him, we take him to the hospital, and he's immediately put into ICU. 
right? So, because he had such infection in his body, he had gangrene of the arm, Ugh, he had sepsis, probably. heart murmur, he had infection, and so, you know, and and he made it through detoxing there. I remember going to visit him every day, and he, they'd have him soak his arm in this big metal tub with this sauna, with this jacuzzi thing going, and he was fine. He was like, I've always wanted to be back with everybody. And it was just really natural how it happened. Right. Mm -hmm. Then I said, well, why don't you just move in with me? And so he moved in with me. Then he got a little money and then he got an apartment in my building and he just hung out and played music. And, and, you know, and he, he did go to 12 step meetings because I went every day and he would go and he wasn't really, you know, catching fire for the program, but he went for years just hanging out with me. And I remember as he got his career back, people would pick on him to share because he's the famous guy in the room, right? And he'd yeah. say, I don't know much, but I just know that I hang out with so-and-so and so-and-so and Bob and, and I just don't do drugs and it's been great and I'm glad to be here and thank you for letting me share. He would never <laughs> share anything <laughs> other than that. Right? <laughs> And he was talking about what AA really is. Yeah, like yeah, that's a good point. Like it's about friends and and love and and understanding and and it's not about rules and this thing and you have to do this step this way and all this kind of stuff. It's not about that. It's about love and compassion. So, so he got sober. So then I became known as the guy who gets rock stars sober, right? Oh. So I. So I helped a couple others. They didn't do so well, but, you know, I, and I started working at Musician's Assistance Program in 1999. And then I tried to help somebody and they died. Mm. So I'm believing that I'm the guy that can help musicians. And then one of them died. And I was like, and I had had several things that were suggesting, hey, maybe you're not so powerful. I had one guy who was with me for three months and four days after he left, treatment with me he flipped the car and was arrested with a handgun and high and cocaine possession oh, <laughs> that's God. like whoops that one yeah. got away <laughs> 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 but, when, but when the first one is this magical experience you just keep holding on to that so mm. then this guy dies and i'm in my office and i'm really all day i'm just like stunned and then my mentor this guy buddy arnold who, who supervised me and candy finnegan um, comes in and he goes, listen, if you're going to take credit for these motherfuckers' sobriety, you've got to take responsibility for their fucking death. Do you want to do that? And I was like, no fucking way. He goes, you didn't have much with getting Kishante sober, and you didn't have much to do with this. Mm, right? That's really you good. Got it. We just, he just said, we just do what we do, Bob. Mm. And really, from that moment, that was in 1999, from that moment forward, I just think we do what we do, and the outcomes are, are, are owned by the individual, right? So John's responsible for his sobriety. He was willing. He was willing to, to do things that, that it takes to be sober, right? Right. My friend who died wasn't. Yeah. And and you can say that's the disease that prevented him from being willing. I don't believe that. I believe he chose not to. 
Hmm. I don't believe people die from the disease. They, they die from choosing not to do what's necessary to change their lives. They don't have the courage to change their own lives. Yeah, that that's that. I know that sounds harsh and judgmental. It's a truth. You either have the courage to hang in there, and not use in the, in the times when you want to, to embarrass yourself and ask for help, to cry, to just make it to sleep tonight and see what tomorrow brings, to always hold sobriety and abstinence precious no matter what. The people who are courageous enough to do that always succeed. The yeah. people who are not courageous enough to do that often die. Yeah. Especially lately. You know. So no, but my new thing is these kids don't even know what courage is. They're not even they don't have the mental capacity to understand what courage is. Me, John, you, you know, adults, thirty five year old people, people that have experienced life, they do know. So it's a, it's a decision sure. to them. Are you going to have the courage to be a parent, to take responsibility for your life or not? And if you don't, I love you anyways, but I'm not, you know, I don't know what to tell you. If you yeah. do have that courage, I will go to the ends of the earth for you. Yeah. That's and true. you for me and you that, for me. The truth. So, but these kids don't even know what courage is. So you can't hold them to that standard. I'm very passionate about it. These kids are so inexperienced and so childlike and so dumb. I I gotta <laughs> yeah. tell you, yeah. that it's yes. jaw dropping how yes. dumb a twenty year old person can be. And that's the fault of our education system. That's the fault of our society and our culture. That's the fault of our, our parenting. Yes. Yes, completely. And so we have to change the soul of America if we want to help young people grow up. You know what I mean? I mean, you feel I, like and, it's and it is political, and it is political, and it is cultural, and it's not just addiction. It involves us as a society. I guarantee yeah. you. I was in France last summer. There's no twenty-year-old idiots there. There's 20-year-old high-functioning kids like I was and your generation probably was. Right. What has happened to this generation where they're treated like such infants their entire fucking life that they can't even cope with, you know, their phone breaking? <laughs> uh, do, you, do you think it's getting – are we even beginning to get better? That's what I'm like, – because well, it's I, so I, easy I, to – I, I really thought, and here's what happens. If they can survive long enough and they get to, to, to 26 seems to be a really important age of the kids I've been able to help. At 26, if they That's started true. going to rehab at 19 and they're still in rehab at 26 and they haven't died, all of a sudden they want for a different life. Dude, that's exactly so my goal has been in the last five years is to get them through from 19 to 26. I don't care if they're on Suboxone the whole time. I don't yeah. really care as long as they don't die. Yeah. Because somehow you realize at a certain point, 25, 26, 27, it's different for everybody. Like, oh my God, I am a fucking idiot. Yeah. Look at how I've been living. Yeah. Because all of a sudden at 26 and 27 and 28, you can start to see there is no way that I can consider myself a teenager. No. I'm almost 30. All your friends are having you know. kids and married. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Nobody lets you sleep so on the couch I, anymore. So I want to I want to rehab like Aloe to be that bridge until you can get sober. I, I like and that. I don't mind if it's Suboxone. Yeah, you know, I, I just want I want to educate people. Like I don't know. I just feel for this generation. Like they've had nothing that has any value. Kendrick Lamar, maybe. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but what? But what really in common does the average white middle class kid have with Kendrick Lamar? Uh, really? Not, yeah, not not. Much so at all. so it, when I was a white middle class kid, there was you know Led Zeppelin and and the circle jerks and black flag and so many amazing things that were voices of what I was going through. And then things that I could be taught by the clash being the main teachers, like the clash and Joe Strummer in particular taught me how to be an adult. Like, you know, stop whining. Whining has become an American institution. Yeah. Yeah. The new American pastime. You you know what's interesting with these fourteen, fifteen year old kids though is they're going back to like they they like they'll ask me like you know who Nirvana is like Kurt Cobain. (laughs) That's that's my man. I'm like oh my god. So that's your that's your Zeppelin, I guess. That's you know, and I I I talk a lot about music when I do groups with young people. Like um, I was doing a group at that place, Shelly and I had the celebrity rehab people were out, and I had a bunch of young kids. One was 19, right? And I usually use Kurt as an example in some ways about addiction, right? Because he was a friend of mine. So, so, so I said, you know, and everybody knows the story of Kurt Cobain. And I mm-hmm. looked at this 19-year-old kid, and there was this blank look on his face. And I'd never, this was 10 years ago, too. It was eight years ago. And I had never seen it. I was like, you've never heard of who, uh, Kurt Cobain, have you? And he said, uh, no, who's that? Oh and I God. was like, holy fuck, man. Yeah. And that was the beginning. Now you have millions of kids who never heard of Kurt Cobain. Yep. You know what I mean? People don't know who the... There are people who... When I use John Lennon a lot of times as a point of reference. People don't know who John Lennon is. That's they nice. only know who... You know who the newest YouTube star is, or Logan Paul, or you know this thing, or the newest hip hop. They they knew Lil Peep, that's for sure. Huh? They knew Lil Peep, that's for sure. That was a big talk when he died. Yeah. Well, I saw a lot of correlation. I started liking Lil Peep because a a client of mine told me, Bob, I think you would like this kid, Lil Peep. And so I saw the gym class video, right? About right. four, whenever he started three years ago or something. And I was like, this kid reminds me of Kurt. I swear yeah. to God, I was telling everybody, this kid reminds me of Kurt Cobain. For some reason, he's talking to a certain working class, middle class, lower middle class experience that a lot of young people are going through. It's identity it's gender identity questions and drug questions and, and social questions. He was just, he was posing a lot of ideas that I hadn't heard in music in a long time. Right. Yeah. He's, he's putting his suicide. Like what's the point if you die and, and you know, what's the point who cares if I die, I'll do Zannies till I die or whatever was one song that I heard. I thought, I understand that mentality. Me too. That putting it out there like that is important. 
because if you don't really understand what's going on here, you don't come up with your narrative of what's going on here. If you have depression or existential angst, that's going to be your conclusion. Yeah. See, I think people matter. Joe Stummer told me that people matter. People. Yeah. Right? That's the truth. And not just people in my neighborhood, not just Americans, but people in Nicaragua and people in El Salvador and people in, in Chile, they matter. And that caring in this kind of way, you know, the new caring is I'm right, you're wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about wanting to experience Chilean culture. We're going to go to Argentina this summer. Every summer I take my kids, we go to somewhere, right? Brazil yeah. or last year we went to France. We're going to go to Argentina this summer. I, I want my kids to know, like, these, this culture is badass. These people are fucking badass. We are not superior to these people. You just lived amongst them for a month. You yeah. feel superior because you're American? <laughs> My kids aren't going to think that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. We're all on this planet together. And so that, that idea that Joe Strummer taught me, people matter. And people have the power. Right? And right. so little people need to know that. People matter. He matters. He has, his voice matters. See, when you're in that depression and that, that hopelessness and helplessness state that I think a lot of millennials are in general, not just drug-addicted millennials, I think the whole millennial generation kind of thinks like, fuck it all, who cares, yeah. right? When Kurt Cobain said, here, here we are, entertain us, it was a cry to arms, like, fuck you, people. Fuck you. You owe us. Have uh, opportunity. You owe us the same dignities that you get. He was saying, like, you're not going to marginalize people from lower economic backgrounds. You're not going to marginalize me, right? Yeah. And that's what that's what all great music does. It's 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 a call to arms to to demand and to and to change the culture and change the society. That's what punk rock was. Fuck you. Who do you think you are? Yeah. And there hasn't been, you know, the shit I see on the Super Bowl and this L-Star oh, basketball God. shit and Pharrell and all this fucking worthless nothingness. That's not saying anything. Like, boop, 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 bounce it, bounce it, bounce it. <laughs> no, you got to say something fucking important. You have a microphone. I, yeah. I, I can't say it enough. So young people need to embrace people who are, saying things that matter and little peep really was saying things that matter and like he was he was throwing out questions that matter let's say yeah he didn't have answers to the questions he was just throwing the questions out but it definitely helps people that have the same question to hold on one more day that's, that's yeah and exactly then, what it and is and then and then, you know, if we're going to, you know, there's nothing more pathetic than old people trying to act young and embrace youth <laughs> culture. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. you see, like, you know, 40-year-olds trying to act like, yeah, T.I. or this or that. No, it, like, no, you, you need to let young people have their own culture and respect it. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, that's and that that's what I do. I mean, I I I'm sitting in my office right now, record player here. I've got Lenny Bruce, Ted Nugent, Keith Jarrett, The Clash, Cut the Crap, and Toots and the and the and the Maytals, Funky Kingston. So that's what I listen to today or this weekend, right? I'm not sitting around listening to your music. That's your <laughs> music. That's your experience. I'll yeah. enjoy it like with you or I, I'm supportive of you having your own generation's voice, but, but it's not mine. I'm 56, seven years old. Like, you know, go at it. I had my day. You go at it now. And that, that, but when music becomes so lowest common denominator, don't offend anyone, marginalize everything like Beyonce or all this, this horrible cultural music that we have, it, it's, it's designed to appeal to 57-year-olds and 47-year-olds and 37-year-olds and 27-year-olds and 17-year-olds and 7-year-olds. How can it mean anything? How can Damn, it mean that is anything? a good point. Yeah. Well, damn, Bob. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, we're, we're so, about a, yeah, we're, we're about yeah. out of time, dude. But I want millennials to seize life by the throat and go live it. I'm sick of them sitting around being pessimistic and and lacking enthusiasm, whatever. I always get told, oh, but this this movement and that movement, that's a few thousand, few hundred thousand kids. There are 23 million millennials. And for the most part, they are hugely caught up in the opioid crisis and epidemic. They are 70% of the people in your drug treatment centers. They are living at their parents' house, they feel hopeless, disempowered, and, and, and somebody needs to tell them, go fucking burn something down. Go fucking demand your right to fucking party like the Beastie Boys. Yes. Right? Right. It's, it's this passively sitting around with your parents as your best, best friends and letting you live at their house. Fuck that. Fuck that. Go sleep in a laundromat and go find some people <laughs> to form a band with. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we could talk. I'm glad you're fighting a good fight and get the message out there. That's so like the main thing I tell them is just ask people like, or that's actually what fucking got me sober was I finally had... One counselor would be like, "Hey, so like, what? Is, why are you here? Like, what's your purpose?" And I was there like, "There uh, you go. That's a little peep question." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why are you here, motherfucker? Why are you here? Like, <laughs> well, I'm older, and and the way that it was introduced to me, somebody caught on that I was pretty well educated and pretty whatever, you know, read a lot or something, and said, "You ever heard of Joseph Campbell?" Yes. The counselor said this in rehab. And I said, yeah, the guy that Star Wars is based on. They said, no, have you read The Power of Myth? Or have you seen his lectures on myth, mythology? And I was like, no. And I remember she, gave, she came a couple days later and gave me a copy of it, a DVD copy, a, a VHS copy of it. And I said, oh, how am I supposed to watch this? And she goes, no, it's for you to take to have. I got it for you. Like that woman like went out of her way, right? This is 1995. And I remember watching it and my mind was blown. And he said one particular thing that affected me to this day. And that is, 
if you have not found your bliss, if you do not find purpose, all you are doing is taking up air. Oh, wow. So, so I've just felt like I've lost my bliss. Like I, I, music was my bliss and I've lost it. So that's why I can't, that's why I can't get back on track. Right. Mm-hmm. And ironically, what, what my next bliss and purpose was, was getting sober and, and helping other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. It's become, you know, the book is very specific. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. That doesn't mean if it's convenient for you, doesn't mean um, if the person you're trying to, you know, carry a message to likes the message you're giving them or does what you tell them to do. It just means simply that I've now found my bliss. I've now found my purpose. All the rest of the shit falls into place. Man, that's good. So let's carry on. We got the millennials to save. Some, uh, yeah. some millennials going to be president someday. We got to figure this shit out. Oh yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah. We need to quick. <laughs> Couldn't nearly be as bad as the baby boomer that's president. Oh, God, man. (laughs) Jeez. Three more years. Maybe. Uh, Yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe five, maybe seven. Oh, God. Well, Bob, thanks, man. I hope to, um, yeah, I hope to keep in touch, man. I really, I really appreciate it. I yeah, really, really dig what you're doing, man. You have any questions or, or, you know, you're looking a little down. I, you know, I pretty much here for everybody to kind of lean on because I'm, you know, I've built up an amazing emotional resiliency. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that, man. That, that's a resource I'll definitely have to tap. So, all right, so man. We'll remember have... what Buddy Arnold said: if you're going to take if you're going to take credit for the sobriety, you got to take responsibility for the death. You want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> no. no, not at all. Nobody in their right mind wants to sign up for that. And only like delusional idiots think like, well, the guy who succeeded listened to me and the guy that died didn't. So that's Oh, yeah, I love that. You know what I I mean? I love that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. People are so, so so many people are so stupid at this point. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it shouldn't surprise me anymore, but I'm constantly shocked, yes. (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm just shocked at a time when, you know, when there's, you know, our children kill each other. Um, police kill young black boys on the streets of America every day. We're in two wars that we've been in for 15 years. Uh, uh, 3% of the population have 87% of the wealth. Yeah, that's And yet fucking our music just reflects like, get jiggy with it, shake your booty, shake your booty. Oh, blah, it's, blah, blah. it's by design. You know, I mean? you know it's by design. No, if this was happening in 1979, you, you this was happening in the, in the in the 1970s. There was a huge recession. There was 20% 15% unemployment. There was 20% like just economic d- despair in America. And what came out of that? Punk rock. Well, that's what I'm so saying. You don't think corporations are, are like pumping something out the bullshit? Be coming out of this. Yeah. Huh? I said, you don't think corporations are pumping out the Beyonce's to like distract everyone? That's what I was saying about that. 
I think that's what people like. Yeah. I, you know, I see it a lot. I see moms because I got a two-year-old. Right? I see moms with their like, with their like seven-year-olds bumping Beyonce at the school. You know, when you go to pick your kids up at school. Yeah. Like that's just fucked up, man. I didn't want to <laughs> listen to music with my mother. Yeah, it's true. That was that was a, like, that was the, when you had to stop listening to that band when your mom picked it up. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that was the day you had to go burn the sure. CD. I know, I know. Parents who go to Coachella with their kids and see the same bands. Like, I don't want that. I got a thirty-one-year-old. I've never, never gone and seen a band with him. That's his thing. He goes and sees his bands. I go and see my bands. If sometimes we're seeing the same band, which I think there's only been a couple, Elliot Smith, oh, Radiohead. That's my man. You know what I mean? Those are those are two bands that we both liked. But for the most part, he likes like. He, you know, when he was like 17, like, like Devander Barnard and all this shit, hippie, fucking dirty, smelly patchouli kids. I don't like that shit. <laughs> like, you yeah. know what I mean? I was at the Steve Earle concert. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but I don't see how music can, can be, can be enjoyed by the mother and the seven-year-old child. One of them's lying. <laughs> oh man alright Bob cool cool have a good night alright you too man bye 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 What'd you think, dude? That was amazing, man. I, I wish I was there for that. Um, I, I really, I really disagree with a lot of of his current beefs, man. With the treatment, and big T, big treatment. Yeah. And you know, and like, just and like, it's it's cool, it's crazy because like I was. It's the process of recovery is such a process to where in the beginning it's kind of like you're so hard nosed and like it's this or nothing else and like and I think that's so functional it's so useful and then you get to this place where it's like oh wait but this works and that works and this other yeah. stuff and and like Bob said this is really just about love and compassion man it's not about 
you need to do this step this way. And that's not what this is about, man. Let's F these dogmas, you know? Yeah. This is like, like this, this fellowship was created to get away from these dogmas, you know? It's and, true. Um, and I, let's not bring it back there, you know? I, it, it, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Completely agree. And it's like, it would be interesting to see like what, um, what Bill would think about it now, Bill being the founder of AA. But man, it's it really, really, it would really be interesting. There's a, I mean, I, you know, I do some research on this stuff, and there's a few people that send in like a scientific article. It's like the founders of AA, like you know, what has become AA in a lot of places is a large departure from what the founders intended. And it I'm is. Like, yep. Yep. Well, and it's you know what's funny is like in, in a in a micro way you can you can totally see like what happened to Christianity. I'm sure what happened to Hinduism. Everything. It's like you you have this it, he, the key, the common denominator is people really mess stuff up. <laughs> people plus time equals really fucked up. Shit, man. Is that hey, it's such a great model for that, man? It yeah, is. Everything is. It's like this. Shit, everything. I'm trying to explain this to psychology people. Like I've been taking a class on treatment of substance abuse, and they're like, "I don't like it," and all this stuff. And I'm just like, "Look, you know, like things get watered down. You know, yes. like yes. there's watered down, you know, versions of cognitive behavioral therapy and this and that and that." I said that you can't pretend like the same thing doesn't happen in AA. Like what was originally its intended purpose, like in, the, in many places of the world, a country and world, I think aside from Lafayette, honestly, like that has happened. You know? Right. It's like, yeah, like the original intent of meetings was only for newcomers to get a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Like that was it. Like you're supposed to do everything else, right. like not right. there. Right social hour yeah man it's show off your shoes and drink shit coffee (laughs) i don't know man and and then yeah and then i'm just a a bitter cynical man yo this job is hard (laughs) dude this job is hard (laughs) yeah yeah bet how's it going man it's good it's you know like so many parts of it are just heartbreaking, like, you know, listening mm-hmm. to, uh, I have my first probably big, like, breakdown sobbing, like, and, and it's just like when they, when I see them cr- crying like that, I just see myself and like, oh my God, I'm, like, ah. I'm just like, oh man, I'm like, you just, I just feel it, dude. It's like, I know how just frustrated and hurt they are by everything and yeah it's tough dude and then and then on the other and then on the other hand there's just like complete and utter a-holes that i still have to love and have and then even still you realize that you're only an a-hole because like you're really broken yeah yeah it's it's just it's tough and it's like and like the steps to get to that place you know, I feel like that's a lot where a counselor can intervene, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, wow, it's, you know, I'm really just fucking hurting, you know, and then realizing that. Yeah. It's hard. 
Yeah. It's really difficult, man. But it's you know, I, I I'm 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 in it, man. I still I still dig it. It's it's cool. Yeah. It's just yeah. nobody said it would be easy. Mama said there'd be days yeah. like this. Mama said there'd be days like this. <laughs> All right, man. Well, Fancy Black Panther, brother. Oh, oh yeah, man, real, dude. Real, yeah. Have you seen it? Twice. <laughs> okay. Cool. All right, yeah. Nice. So yeah. I'm it was excited. really good. Really excited. Very good. Nice. Um, awesome. Yeah, they did well with that. Sweet, for sure. Sweet. All right, well, send us an email: church and other drugs at gmail dot com. Check out our Patreon: Patreon backslash church and other drugs. And uh, Debesh, uh send us out with something. You have to pay for Mrs. Cookie. <laughs> Come on, we need the juice. Uh, later. Appropriation. Later. Yeah. Yeah.